Hello? You have reached the 11th dimension. The wife you are trying to contact is currently unavailable. Please try again later. Goodbye. Huh. Well, that's a new one. Welcome to another episode of Sundowners. Where's my wife? Long-distance conversations about architecture, place, and global travel. I'm John Golden. And I'm Sarah Rovang. So, uh, where's my wife this week? I guess, like, on a set for a Doctor Who episode, or...? (laughs) (laughs) I'm in Paris again. Yeah, I've been kind of relaxing this week, or, you know, at least as close as I ever get to relaxing. Um, And the clip you heard was from my trip to the Cité des Sciences et de l'Industrie, which is the science and industry museum up in the north of Paris, um, from a audio installation that you could very easily miss um, because it is projected such that you can only hear it on the outside of the building when you stand between these two particular walls. Um, And the name of this piece basically translates to Alice's Wall, Alice being a reference to Alice in Wonderland. So the idea is that you kind of pass through the sound barrier into the museum, kind of like Hmm. Alice going through the looking glass and into Wonderland. So um, I thought it was my my bad iPhone recording doesn't do it justice, but I thought it was a really uh, sort of clever and under the radar way of signaling to visitors that they're entering a new kind of space. Yeah, that's a that's pretty smart. I, I don't recall ever having heard something like that at a museum before. Yeah, yeah. And and again, I, I very easily could have missed it. But I'm always on the lookout for a QR code to scan. And I was doing the audio <laughs> tour outside this building and, and just came across it. So, yeah. Very good. So you've been relaxing in Paris then. What's what's that been like? Um, it, It's been really nice to sort of feel like I actually have a routine. Um, mm. Not that it's a really stable routine, but I have kind of been doing the same things every day I I get up I I write for a while I do some yoga have a shower and then uh, usually fix myself lunch at the apartment and then go out either on an industrial heritage mission or to some other exploration in the neighborhood so yeah it's a it's nice to actually feel like I have a neighborhood to have this sort of stable base back in Paris where whatever other crazy things I get up to in the intervening weeks, I can come back and kind of know what to expect in this uh, this neighborhood that I'm staying in. Yeah, know where to buy wine and cheese and go for a nice walk. Exactly, yeah. Right. Um, anyway, so have you had any good sort of standout excursions while you've been in Paris or has it really just been kind of relaxing? Um, well, I, I, again, went to the, the Science and Industry Museum. Um, I also went to the uh, Museum of Arts et Métiers, which is kind of like the Arts and Work Museum. It, it is also an sort of arts and industry museum. 
um, that's in central Paris. Um, and that was a really interesting experience as well. I Instagrammed about it and have, have been writing a little bit about it as well. Um, but yeah, I also just have been taking walks to see nice architecture. The weather last week was fabulous. Um, so I got to see some of the parks of Paris that I hadn't seen previously. Um, I walked up to Butte Chamon, which is um, a park that really reminded me a lot of, of Central Park. It had that same kind of picturesque, rolling, Olmstedian uh, sort of vibe to it. Um, and I went for a nice walk on La Coulée Verte, which is kind of like Paris's answer to the High Line, even though it's older than the High Line, um, which is <laughs> an sort of railway infrastructure that has been converted into this green walking path. Um, why does we, everything now have to be in relation to the High Line? I, why, <laughs> just from an architectural <laughs> kind of sociological uh, perspective. Yeah, it, it is interesting that even though there were urban parks like this before the High Line, that's just sort of the touch point that so many people are aware of, which I guess is a testament to uh, just how, how many people have experienced the High Line or have heard of it, which is certainly borne out if you try to go there, especially on a weekend on a nice day in New York City. It seems like everyone in the world is there. How busy was the, the Coulée Verte? Um, I was out on, I think, like a Wednesday afternoon, and it was pretty, pretty bustling. Um, definitely a lot of runners and, um, yeah, people of all walks of life and all ages were just kind of out enjoying the, the fresh air. And I also walked out to uh, Père Lachaise, which is the big famous Parisian cemetery that has a lot of notable figures buried there, like uh, the writer Colette and Oscar Wilde is there. Um, did you kiss the tombstone or whatever? I did not. There are so many grimy lip prints on the glass that they've had to put <laughs> up around the tombstone to prevent other people's kisses from degrading the stone. That oh, Yeah, that was, yeah. Um, what a fascinating yeah, I, conservation challenge to, to deal with. I know. And it's it's all done by the family. There, There's a, a sign up saying that like, hey, the family is the one paying for all of this. So like, don't do stuff to this monument. But still, there's there's plenty of lipstick all over the place. Oof. So um, now that you've gotten sort of a bit of of Europe traveling under your belt, I mean, you've been in Europe for you know, over a month now, um, you know, overall, like, how is it, how does it compare to, to our part of the trip? I mean, is there stuff that you're kind of enjoying more or finding harder or what's it been like? Um, it is kind of like comparing apples and oranges, I would say, um, the sort of traveling that we were doing in a lot of ways, you know, even if we were in a really developed country like Japan, did feel kind of like adventure travel. You know, there was always this mm. kind of element of the unexpected. Um, and there were certainly things that we saw in South Africa and Chile that I think genuinely like would count as adventure travel, you know, doing our, <laughs> our crazy road trip through the Atacama Desert, for instance. Um, and in Europe, there's just not that vibe. Uh, you know, there mm -hmm. things are so dense. They're so developed and built up that, you know, even if you are traveling out into the countryside around Milan, um, 
there are still plenty of people around. There's still a lot of infrastructure. You don't get that same totally off the beaten path, remote feel when you're going to these sites. Um, so that's that's been pretty different, I would say. And and are you missing that kind of off the beaten path, or is it nice to be in civilization now? I well, both and. Um, <laughs> I mean, as I think you described in one of our previous podcasts um, last week or the week before, you have been kind of missing that. You know, getting out mm-hmm. into. Uh, the hinterlands of a country and seeing some things <laughs> that not a lot of people see. So I do miss that. I do miss that kind of feeling of like, this is a really weird thing that we are doing and not a lot of people do it. Right. Uh, Cause most of the places I've been going um, with a few exceptions are very well trafficked. Um, so yeah, I do. I, and I have gotten spoiled just being alone at sites means you get to see things very easily. You get to move at your own pace. You don't have to worry about like running into a giant tour group or a bunch of kiddos. Um, and, you know, one thing again that we, I at least keep mentioning about our leg of the trip is the fact that we were going to these very out of the way, very weird places meant it was really easy to kind of not have expectations going in because you just had no idea what to expect. But I imagine if you're going to, major museums in Europe, you know, you probably have a decent idea of of what to expect, or are you still managing to maintain that sort of zen, you know, no baggage, just show up and experience what it is? I mean, I I think that I have been doing a pretty good job of maintaining that, that no expectations attitude, just because in a lot of cases, even if there's a really popular site that has a really nice website, the website does not fully convey the experience or does in some cases not accurately convey the experience. Um, so yeah, I've had a, I've had a number of instances where I show up and things are just different than I was expecting. And that's fine. Cause I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of emotional investment in that image of the place. Um, yeah, so I mean, what are you hoping to sort of get out of the rest of the trip? I mean, either intellectually or maybe, you know, on a personal level, or is there something that you're just like some particular experience that you're really looking forward to? Or what's what's it look like for you for the next few months? Yeah, well, I mean, so intellectually, um, something that I've been thinking a lot about the past couple weeks is I've been traveling in Italy, Slovenia, and now looking forward to my next trip to the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, is kind of continuing something that we talked a lot about in the first half of the trip, which is sort of destabilizing or inverting this typical relationship that we think of when we think of the Industrial Revolution, this idea basically that like it all started in Britain and then it kind of trickled out from there Mm -hmm. and uh, disseminated to other parts of the world. And so I'm very now intentionally seeing Britain last, like that is going to be the last new place that I go to on this Europe trip. And so what I, what I'm have been asking myself is, you know, how can we talk about industry in ways where we don't have to start with, well, in the 1820s in Britain, blah, 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 (laughs) blah, blah. Uh, Because even, you know, I, I was looking at the, um, website for Crespa d'Ada, the this town I visited outside Milan when I was in Italy. And even in their history section, 
that's the way they introduce the industrial revolution um, mm. is by talking about Britain. So it starts in Britain, it moves to France, and then eventually after Italian unification in 1861, Italy starts to industrialize. And then and there's something of, about Commodore Matthew Perry in there in 1853. <laughs> of course. Yeah. He's everywhere. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Um, I should probably mention that that's a little inside joke from our time in Japan, where essentially every museum we visited talked at great length about Commodore Matthew C. Perry, who was the first Westerner to visit Japan with steam-powered ships. And this was basically the impetus for Japan's Industrial Revolution. Anyway. Yeah. And so that, that narrative, though, leaves out the fact that there was already this really bustling and vibrant, essentially pre-steam-powered industry um, in Italy. Um, all of these mills that were producing silk and other textiles um, as early as the 16th century and really building up through the 18th century. And this was all just using river power. It wasn't using any other kind of um, energy source. Um, but it was a factory system, and it's just because it wasn't the same as the sort of industrial revolution style of industry, you know, to me, it, it's, it's, it still counts as industry. So, yeah, the, the part of this project that I'm, I'm engaged in right now, I'm just kind of trying to, to see industry in different ways and, uh, and kind of maybe take, take Britain out of the driver's seat a little bit. So that's that's one of my intellectual interests. And then personally, um, I'm still hoping to build confidence um, and independence and resilience, just kind of being able to roll with the punches and do my own thing, um, do some things that are, if I can find them in Europe, that are off the beaten path that do require a little bit of extra effort to get to and mm -hmm. feel comfortable and confident doing those things on my own. Got it. And is there anything like that you're just looking forward to from a purely fun perspective? Yeah. So as I, I write a little bit about in the newsletter this week, um, I was trying really hard to make this trip out to this Swedish radio station work out. And it just, it seems really like it's not going to come together. You know, it's both a time and a money issue in addition to just being logistically really complicated. So now I have two days on the um, West coast of Sweden with not a lot to do. And I'm hoping to maybe do some hiking by myself, like take a couple of days off from, from the industry stuff and just, um, Cause you know, when we were together, we certainly took days off and did nature stuff and hikes. And I, I would like to do some of that on my own too. Yeah. Well, and, and maybe do, I don't know, Paris Disney or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I think it's going to be hard to top Tokyo Disney. Yeah. Too. You should, you should rope my parents into, into Paris Disney though. I think that would just be a fascinating uh, study. Well, I've, I've already roped them into going to a Swiss spa with me designed by a, a world famous architect. So we'll see how that goes first. Oh, that's fun. Um, yeah, well, that's good. And, uh, I mean, as you were saying, you know, industrial heritage is just a lot more commonplace around Europe. So it is easier to 
scale things appropriately to your energy level and kind of determining, you know, yeah, I just want to do something nearby or I'm feeling up to a big adventure, um, which is good. I mean, it, I also kind of wonder, so, you know, why, <laughs> okay, there there is sort of the historical reasoning behind, you know, industrial heritage being very prominent in in the UK and in Europe. Um, and, you know, there is more money there, but it still seems like just on the whole, like, it's just a bigger deal there than I would have expected. Yeah. I mean, why do you think that is? Yeah. Um, honestly, I think because of the general rise in global tourism, Europe has been a hub of tourist activity for a really long time. And now with the rise of the middle class in both China and India, um, there is just demand for more things to do. And I think... Um, oh, that's so interesting. People are coming to Europe anyway, and there are just places, um, museums, let's say art museums, that can't support an unlimited number of people going to them. Um, a lot of the museums that you and I went to in 2008 in Paris have now basically gone to exclusively timed tickets because mm. they just can't handle the crowds. Um, and so I think there, there is this shift and this awareness that like there are, there are almost the, the demand outstrips the supply. And so I think the European economy can really support all of these industrial heritage places because Many of them, as we've talked about in previous podcasts, tend to be large because they're yeah. <laughs> industrially sized, so they can handle a lot of foot traffic. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, you you get these these larger scale places that uh, that uh, can can handle crowds um, and give people alternatives when, like, oh man, every person is at the Louvre today, so sure, I guess I'll sure. go find something else to do. And so you have been encountering a very diverse array of, of tourists, you know, from around the world at these different places? Yeah. I mean, as I was describing last week in Slovenia, the fact that more than half of the people on my uh, English language tour of the Mercury mine were from Malaysia. I mean, like, mm -hmm. that's that's kind of interesting, right? Yeah, absolutely. And... um one could maybe hope that because there is such a demand, there's also, you know, experimentation and there's also a diversity of different industrial heritage things and some of them succeed, maybe some of them don't as much, but there could be, you know, a lot of growth and a lot of kind of innovation in, in the industrial heritage sector to fulfill this demand. Are you seeing that at all or? I, I am seeing that. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely feel like, approach uh, sort of interpretive and curatorial approaches have been a lot more um, experimental and avant-garde in Europe than in mm. other places that we've traveled. Um, there, there does seem to be this willingness to um, see what audiences respond to and, um, you know, reciprocally respond back to that. So. Well, that's great. And maybe, you know, down the road, some of these new approaches and techniques can then be sort of exported 
to other parts of the world, much like industry was exported back in the 1800s. Whoa. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Time is a circle. That's anyway. right. <laughs> well, well, I- it is getting to be my dinner time here in Paris. Um, so why don't we wrap up with our good look, not a good look segment. Um, John, why don't you start with your good look for the week? Well, this is going to be some, some blatant pandering to the audience here, or specific, specifically two members of the audience. But um, my, my good look for the week is gifts for pets. Um, so this is a shout out to Dean and uh, and Patty Rovang who have been dutifully sending me back with gifts for Nessa and Pluto every time I go see the Rovangs and in Albuquerque. And you know, I think on the whole, the the ratio of enjoyment to cost in in buying you know a two dollar squeaky toy at the checkout line at Petco or Home Goods or whatever. Yeah, you know, it's pretty high because, man, it, the dogs really do just, it's just so much fun. And it's <laughs> it's nice that, you know, when other people can uh, give you gifts that aren't for you but still make you really happy, I think that's kind of a, a good look. So gifts for pets or gifts for, I don't know, I guess for people who have little kids, that kind of stuff. It's it's a nice that's way right. to, it's a nice way to do gifting. So what about you, Sarah? What's your good look? Um, so I'm going to do my good look, but bad look back to back. Mm. Um, Got it. Because they are related. Um, so I would say that my good look is, this is in a totally different trajectory than your good look. Um, <laughs> my good look is Japanese cemeteries. Okay. Um, I didn't appreciate how uh, tasteful and aesthetically pleasing um, and just really o- understated Japanese cemeteries were until I went to Père Lachaise this week mm. um, and was reminded that people do really weird things to commemorate themselves, architecturally and artistically <laughs> speaking. Um, and some of them are in pretty poor taste. Um, mm. So that's my corresponding not a good look is building yourself um a weird giant monument uh when you die um, yeah it's just generally like not a good look like go for the the um, rectangular granite prism that that typifies a uh, japanese tombstone that's that's a good look yeah i mean unless you're gonna do like you know the taj mahal you know yes then, then yeah okay if, maybe. If, okay Maybe that's if you are going to build an architectural masterpiece that will last thousands of years and will draw global tourism, I mean, go for it. Yeah, yeah, but otherwise, maybe just stick to to this. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Okay, what's what's your what's your not a good look, John? I guess for me, it's it's more not a good sound. Um, but I uh, I've really developed an antagonistic relationship with the smoke alarms in my parents' house. Um, we also the 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 fireplace up here is doesn't draw well all the time, and so occasionally the house does get a little smoky. And the smoke alarms are just they're awful things. I mean, you know, it's like that point zero one percent of the time that they really are giving you useful information, and then the other ninety nine point nine percent of the time when they're just making. What maybe is already a slightly stressful situation, like you, you know, 
burnt something on the stove or your fire isn't doing well. It just makes it so much worse. And when you have dogs, they freak out. So I think just smoke alarms are pretty much awful things. Um, and I cannot wait to get some smart smoke alarms that you can Bluetooth with and tell to shut up and do all of that good stuff. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to coming home and finding that, you know, that we have some, some smart home stuff going on some black mirror level <laughs> That's uh, right, yeah. semi-sentient home devices at play yeah i don't think you have to worry about that too much but um <laughs> that's but right you might just come back to a bunch of unplugged smoke alarms um <laughs> <laughs> whoops so anyway <laughs> hey parents uh don't worry i'm not going to burn the house down um anyway so i think that's all for the week folks and uh Tune back next week for some more adventures from Sarah Roving, Brooks Traveling Fellow. Where in the world she'll be, we'll just have to find out. Thanks so much for listening this week. As always, our theme music is by the Liminianas. Happy trails, listeners. <laughs> <laughs>